Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's been a very, very difficult few days for an awful lot of people. Uh, the Marines were repatriated, as I say, to uh, America yesterday. Uh, Joe Biden was seen um, at the airport as the coffins were being taken off, draped in American flags, the star-spangled banner. Always a difficult moment for anybody. Some of the families uh, getting very, very worked up about the fact that their children died in vain. Uh, Tobias Elwood, who is, of course, Conservative MP, Chair of the Defence Select Committee, wrote a brilliant piece in the Mail on Sunday uh, in which he said, if this isn't what defeat looks like, I don't know what does. The reverberations from what happened last week are still going on. Let's talk to Tobias now. Tobias, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for uh, for joining us. A great piece at the weekend in which I think you encapsulated all uh, of our thoughts in terms of what's happened, why it happened, how it could have uh, been stopped. The carnage, as you describe it, um, uh, has been caused entirely by Joe Biden and his policy. Um, and it could have been so different, couldn't it? It certainly could have done. He picked up the same policies that Donald Trump uh, started with by agreeing to all the conditions that the Taliban asked for in Doha and the talks that were taking place, uh, the biggest of which, of course, was the withdrawal of the U.S. forces uh, without any ceasefire in place, without any agreement as to how the government of Afghanistan would move forward. And by doing so, the Afghan forces straight away lost their top cover. They lost their support even for their equipment. And I'm, I'm afraid some of the bigger decisions that we made uh, in a few years ago, uh, in the style of the construct of the Afghan forces, where they looked after the districts, the urban areas, but not the rural areas, allowing the Taliban to sort of build up a background of support. You know, there's some basic schoolboy errors that went wrong. No doubt that's the reason why perhaps he wanted to get out. But it was messy. It was going in the right direction. And we now see, you know, the scale of problems unfold here. I don't think there's anybody outside the White House that can actually claim this is any form of success. Well, it really isn't. And and, and, and my fear as well, Tobias, is that this is the beginning of the next phase, isn't it? The next chapter, because it's not as if now we're out of Afghanistan, that's it, all over and done with. Thanks very much indeed, cheerio. Uh, we'll leave you to get on with your own devices. We're now entering a far more dangerous period, it seems to me. You're right, because not just are we dealing with the humanitarian crisis, the migration issues, and of course, terrorism in Afghanistan, probably going to hit other parts of the world as well. Is this a 
turning point in history where the West as an entity is unable to defend the international rules-based order, unable to advance democracies and, and sort of the liberal thinking, is it the rise of authoritarianism? You know, this is the moment where we really look, uh, I think, uh, less able to have a, an influence on the global stage. So there's some big questions for the United Kingdom as well. Uh, historically, traditionally, when the United States has hesitated, it's Britain that has stepped forward. It's Britain, not just to do the heavy lifting, but to do the thinking, to do the statecraft, to take other nations with us and defend uh, what is right. And clearly, we've hesitated. We, we lack the bandwidth, I think, or indeed perhaps the appetite as well to be able to fill that vacuum. And the difference between perhaps in history where Viet, um, the United States has stepped back after Vietnam, the 1930s as well, now you've got a rising superpower in the form of China, very keen to fill that vacuum. And that's the first thing they can do in Afghanistan after the mineral resources, lithium in particular, which, of course, we now know is so precious because it's required in the in our ever greater use of batteries. Yes. And when you talk about statecraft, it makes me think of the kind of the power uh, that the civil service has always had traditionally in that kind of role in this country. And it seems to me at the moment, and I don't know whether you can uh, give me a different story, but it seems to me that the Foreign Office has been very much um, away from home on this. They don't appear to have been at the races, do they? Well, you know, that special relationship started with uh, 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 Field Marshal, Field Marshal Sir John Dill during the Second World War. He was the one that uh, was actually on the level of Montgomery. Churchill didn't know what to do with him. So he sent him to Washington, D.C., you know, to hang out there. And he became friends with Dulles and, and, and Marshall and other the, mm. the big cheeses in Washington and was provided a back channel of thought and alternative thinking, you know, of what how we might solve some of the challenges and the problems around the world. And the Americans have benefited from our understanding of the world, our grasp of the world because of our history, our reach, our connectivity. Thanks in part to our diplomacy, our you know what our embassies do and our agencies work, MI5, MI6, able to provide solutions. And as you, you sort of hinted on there, we've lost that art a little bit. We've lost the ability with our back channels to influence the United States, something that they valued. And that goes down to a personal relationship. I can't help thinking how life would have been very, very different if we'd had Reagan in charge in the United States and Thatcher mm. over here. And what do you think has changed in those back channels, Tobias, since then? Because it seems to me that the, 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 the civil servants, who we all kind of didn't know too much about, we always used to, it was all a bit like Sir Humphrey, wasn't it? Um, and people, it was all a bit mystical and mystifying and you couldn't really get into it if you weren't from a certain background and you couldn't rise to the top and all of that. But I wonder whether we've somehow lost the ability to hire the right people to do, to do those jobs. I, I worked in the Foreign Office. I've worked in the MED. You know, we've got great people there, but it's the culture there. You know, if you're not encouraged to look at these solutions, if you're not encouraged to lean in to some of the challenges. Mm. When I was Foreign Office Minister, I came out with a proposal, uh, you know, to help resolve the issues in Yemen, which is another nightmare of, of part of the world, which rumbles on a forgotten war with the humanitarian catastrophe, of course, with other problems that spill out from that that affect us to do with Iran, to do with shipping, to do with all sorts of security for the region. We can't just turn our backs on these things. We have to lean into them. But nobody was interested in my ideas at all. And it was partly because there is this risk averseness that's coming in. This idea also that we can't do anything without the United States. And if there's one wake up call here is the fact that we have to recognize 
that the U.S. may not always be there. We need to look at other alliances, smaller alliances, potentially, to take on some of the challenges. And we do that already. This isn't you know, a new territory we're wandering into. Uh, Operation At Atlanta was taking care of piracy mm. off the coast of Somalia. We did that successfully without the United States. And Afghanistan, I hasten to say, you know, was not complex. You know, this was a low-budget insurgency. They just simply had the time and patience which we ran out of. It says on the front page of the Times this morning, Tobias, terror threat is the worst in years. Um, and I don't think that's uh, an incorrect statement. What are we going to do with this new kind of dangerous world that we, we find ourselves in, where people are kind of literally sort of honeycombed around the world in various different terrorist cells, various different groups? We've got ISIS-K now. Islamic State is still something uh, that we should know about. ISIS is still around. Still, you've got the lone wolf uh, element of, of characters who may or may not be living in Slough. You know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult uh, landscape, isn't it? Yeah, you touch on something so so important because if you reflect why we went into afghanistan in the first place it's because people decided to take their own lives to kill westerners and that uh that threat has not gone away after 20 years there have been attacks every single year in uh, almost every single continent not not on, on such a large scale but the idea that uh, people can still be persuaded to put a suicide vest on and blow themselves up believing they're going to get a fast track to paradise. Until we challenge that, I'm afraid the threat will not disappear, no matter how many drone strikes we have. And that, fundamentally, is the strategy that we're missing. That's not something that the West can solve alone. I'm afraid I look to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia, to Turkey, to the Emirates, to all these other countries that need to work in there, and they need to uh, regain control and direction of their own religion, of, of the Islamic religion, which is a peaceful religion, but has been hijacked by jihadi extremists. Yes, and I think Qatar plays a role in this as well, doesn't it? Because while they've been in some ways helping to kind of negotiate a peace deal, if you like, between the Americans and uh, the Taliban, they've also been accused by the UAE, certainly, of helping to fund Hezbollah, helping to fund the Taliban. You know, there's an awful lot of uh, what I would regard as double dealing going on in that area. Yeah, and this is, as I point to, this is why this situation is so complex. The Muslim Brotherhood is another organization that, again, took the religion into a very, very difficult, uh, complex and dangerous direction. It, it, in Egypt was a, another great example of where that flared up briefly there as well. There is a modern discussion as to how you know this religion uh, needs to be interpreted in today's context. And uh, we, you, know, you touched on Boko Haram, al-Shabaab and so forth. Any part of Africa now, which has poor governance and poor security, that's easy recruitment ground, you know, to get jihadists and extremists uh, to go around the world and then blow people mm. up, as I say, because they think they're going to get blessed for it. They're going to get rewarded for it when they die and go to heaven. Yeah. I mean, I saw a story yesterday and we have our own problems with dinghies arriving on the shores of, uh, of southeast England. But they picked up a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean yesterday coming from Libya to an island, I think it's towards Sicily. Um, 500 men on it. I mean, it was ridiculously over overcrowded, but 500 people. I mean, surely what we need to do now is look at why these people are coming and stop it. I'm glad you say that because I'm, you know, conscious of the audience that listens to this and so forth. You know, there's often a determination. Oh, just send more naval boats out to the down to Dover, yeah. and we'll sort this out. You've got to go to the source of the problem. Why are these people choosing to leave their country, abandon their country that they lived with, their families have lived in for generations? 
Why? Because it's got turned into such a hell that they need that they're willing to risk their lives, mm. you know, give all their money to these terror uh, criminal gangs to get them across to the UK. Don't forget, Libya is another location where we wandered into mm. and didn't have the strategic patience to help rebuild it. Now, nation building is something I know Peter Hitchens has got views on and so on. It's got to be done in a delicate way that recognizes the indigenous, the local norms that are taking place. In Afghanistan, we imposed a Western model where all decision making, including who would be a teacher in Helmand province, was made in Kabul. It's never going to work when you have a tribal structure as you have in Afghanistan and indeed in Libya as well. And what's your understanding of conditions on the ground currently in Kabul? Because we know there's a lot of people that didn't get out um, who were left behind. Um, what's, what's, what's being done for them, if, if anything? Well, I'm pleased to see that now the international organisations are starting to step up. I've been calling for this for a number of days now. You know, we have a duty uh, to those thousands of people that now feel that they will be targeted, they'll be pursued by the Taliban. A lot of talk about the Taliban being different this time from 1998. We're not seeing evidence of that at all. You know, they're banning music. They're telling men to, to grow beards. They're keeping women at home. They're not allowing women to study as they did before. Uh, so this isn't going to be any different, I don't think, from the past. It's going to be worse mm. because, of course, now they've got all this American uh, military equipment and they're probably going to be bankrolled by the Chinese. So our leverage there is very, very much diminished uh, indeed. They do want to be recognized, uh, you know, have the status of recognition by the world. So we have some leverage there, too. But they have closed the, 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 uh, the actual borders because they know that the people trying to leave are the skilled people, mm. the people that keep the country running, keep the airport running, keep the waterworks going, keep you know, all the utility, keep the lights on in Kabul. If they depart, of course, all more, the more harder for the Taliban to, to run the place. Right. And let's not forget they, the Northern Alliance, the Uzbeks and Tazics are starting to regroup as well. They won't remain quiet. They'll want to take back Mazari Sharif in the north uh, and other parts of the country as well. So we're in for a very dark chapter for Afghanistan, all right. because we chose to depart. Yes, I think so. And do you think Boris Johnson's right to um, kind of forge, not necessarily an alliance with the Taliban, but to, to basically say to them, look, we will deal with you diplomatically as long as you adhere to our conditions? You know, in every forms of conflict, there have to be going back to those back channels. You know, the Geneva Conventions allows it, even in the Second World War, there were prisoner body exchanges, there were, there were conversations that took place to make sure civilians that often get caught up uh, in the horrors of war are better protected. So, of course, there needs to be a dialogue with the Taliban, but I certainly would not rush in to, um, uh, to recognising the Taliban at this stage at all. We'd be losing another aspect of leverage. That would be another strategic error that would be made if we were to recognise them too early. Yeah, or at all. I think that's right. Tobias, stay with us if you would. We've just got a, f got a couple more questions to finish up with uh, before we let you go. Tobias Elwood, MP, Chairman of the Defence Select Committee, talking an awful lot of sense about what we should be doing about Afghanistan and also the threats in the world from all sorts of other places, not just from Afghanistan. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Tobias Elwood, MP, Conservative uh, uh, Party, of course, and Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, what are you making so far of the Americans' kind of uh, response, which is, uh, as Joe Biden said, we are going to hunt you down. They're sort of taking people out from drone strikes, but it's difficult to know whether they're taking the right people out or whether that's having an effect which is going to make things worse. I mean, what's your view of that? 
No, we've lost sight of the, the threat picture now. This horizon thinking that, that they, the Americans are, are promoting, this, the idea that you can see things from afar, from high up in drones and so forth, you know, we've lost an understanding of from a human resource of what's going on on the ground because of our departure. And we don't have the relationship with the neighboring countries that may have their own agencies and spy networks and so forth, able to recognize what is actually happening. I, I, re I read reports, I'm not sure if they're true or not, but the second drone strike that took place actually killed some children. So it, it shows you the collateral damage, the horrific collateral damage that comes with trying to fight terrorism, you know, from up on high. It doesn't work that way. And to hunt you down and so forth, it goes back to the point that I made before. The fact that there were families killed uh, in this strike by the US will only encourage others to you know, be more hate hateful towards the West, towards the US and indeed towards Britain, and potentially then join extremist organizations. So actually, they're playing into the terrorist narrative. Yes. And one of the things that obviously a lot of people are talking about is the 20th anniversary soon coming up uh, of 9-11. Um, I've been talking to quite a few people in the States over the course of the weekend, and they're quite worried that something will happen um, as a result of that anniversary, not necessarily in the US, not even necessarily in, in Western Europe, but very possibly at an American sort of installation in Africa or in, in, uh, in Asia, in a place which is relatively easy to bomb, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I wouldn't wouldn't put it past uh, any terrorist organization or particularly uh, Al-Qaeda to want to bookend, if you like, the arrival of American and British and, and international troops into Afghanistan 20 years ago with another major event on 9-11. I'm surprised the Americans have given so much play about this anniversary, wanting to bring our troops back then. It plays well with the domestic audience, which where the original decision to withdraw goes back to. Because this was Donald Trump, President Trump, as I mentioned earlier, who then said, I'm going to bring our troops home. We only had two. They only had 2000 of them there, but they were doing such a critical job. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're providing stability, assurance. And I've made this point you know, before as well. Look at Afghanistan, where it sits on the map, you know, in between Russia and China. What a great place to stay close to if those are now going to be your potential adversaries for you know the next couple of decades mm. we have absented ourselves from a geostrategic part of the world that we should have hung on to yes exactly right and presumably joe biden's um kind of methods and activities over the past couple of weeks will give no confidence to any country around the world who might be facing some kind of threat uh, from from the borders around them because america doesn't look like it wants to help anybody out anymore no unless these are the big questions at the moment as to where where stands and our ability to defend ourselves what we believe in what we actually stand for there was an awful lot of hype a lot of energy at the g7 summit if you remember in cornwall about america is back and we signed a new atlantic charter a determination to help challenge some of the big changes that are taking place i've said even before the afghan departure that our world over the next five years is going to get more dangerous, not less. It's suddenly expedited and shunted a lot faster in that direction because of what's happened in Afghanistan. So where does Britain go from here? We do need to look at other alliances because we can't be sure that the United US will always be there. You know, they will may absent themselves, you know, from uh, aspects or things that we get involved with. I'm afraid it does mean turning to our European allies and post-Brexit, we don't have a great relationship on that front. 
security in Europe is everybody's business. I do hope this will give me a wake-up call mm. and we move on from the pettiness, if you like, of the Brexit discussions about you know getting back to real security issues and working in partnership, particularly with the French. Well, particularly when you think about the Charlie Hebdo incident, when you think about the Bataclan, uh, I know that was all quite a few years ago now, but I mean, I don't see that any of that has really been sorted out in, in France and Belgium. No, it goes back to that, you know, uh, that approach to um, uh, Islam that, that we were just touching on before is the fact that it's still so easy to convince people um, that they were going to get rewarded for actually blowing other people up. The jihadi extremists are very good at influencing, and they even did that, uh, and potentially are continuing to do that, with British-born nationals here in the UK uh, as well. This is a very, very dangerous world we're going at, uh, through at the moment, and there is no, as I say, strategy to deal with this more complex issue, not just dealing with al-Qaeda, you know, uh, uh, Boko, Haram, Boko Haram or indeed Al-Shabaab or ISIS-K. These are organizations. What about the individuals that are reading the Internet, so seeing this stuff and are being, uh, you know, radicalized in this way? Our programs are not working the way they should be because you only need a few people to cause the harm and the mayhem that we see I'm afraid, too much on a regular basis. Yes. And I was listening to Tom Tugendhat speaking at the weekend, Tobias. He was talking about running a, an inquiry over all of this to see exactly what we should have done, who should have done what, when, uh, and why we ended up doing what we did do. Um, do you welcome that? Absolutely. Uh, my own committee will be running our inquiry, which will sit uh, adjacent to that, looking at the military aspects of that. How did our military form? Did they have the right equipment? You know, did, How did the surge work? Critically, you know, they performed so valiantly, but they created an umbrella of security, if you like, where things have to happen underneath it. You have to develop, um, you know, promote uh, development and reconstruction and governance and so on. But things didn't happen quickly enough. I recall, I remember flying back to Afghanistan. I visited the country a dozen times. And one of my last visits, I flew over the Kajaki Dam, mm. uh, this big dam in the north of Helmand. And when I looked out of my window, I was horrified to see that the turbine that 16 Air Assault Brigade had delivered a decade earlier was still sitting in its bubble wrap next to the dam. It hadn't mm. even been put in place. Now, imagine had that been fixed, the electricity that it would have provided Helmand, it would have been game-changing to win over the hearts and minds of those people, you know, who they're the very people that we went to help. But no, there was a disjoint between the military work that we did and then the good efforts that should have happened underneath that umbrella of security that I spoke about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Tobias Elwood, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, he is, of course, a chair of the Defence Select Committee. There will be an inquiry, and it needs to happen because we need to find out what exactly did go wrong. I'm concerned that the Foreign Office uh, has dropped the ball. I'm certainly concerned that the Home Office dropped the ball some time ago. The civil service, which we used to be so very proud of in this country, uh, seems to have become completely and utterly unfit for purpose. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say uh, that joining us this morning for the first time this week, of course, Angela Levitt, Royal Biographer to the Stars, and of course, a woman who knows a thing or two about finding freedom. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, Thank I understand you. that you're the lucky recipient of the new chapter that uh, Harry and Meghan have certainly not authorised Omid Scobie to write. Uh, what can yeah. you tell us? Well, I mean, it's, it's totally breathtaking because there are at least three areas where they try and insinuate in rather nasty terms mm. that um, the monarchy could absolutely fall apart because of the way they have been treated. Of course. It, it's breathtaking. So um, what 
just beforehand, there's the introduction. Now, here we have a book that they say they haven't commissioned, they haven't allowed, in, in, with people who are anonymous. And if I was them, I would be suing the writers because they, they come across as absolutely ghastly, selfish, me, me, me people. Mm. Now, how they can let that go... I wonder if they've actually read it, how they can let that go without doing something, taking some form of action um, is, is very, very interesting. So there are three things. The first one, I'm going to read some of it, if I may. Please do. Um, is uh, Queen Elizabeth rules over the Commonwealth, one of her greatest accomplishments. But the 54 nation groups of countries are multicultural and diverse. They welcomed Meghan as a breath of fresh air, someone who represented diversity and inclusivity within the establishment, and someone that at last young people can finally relate to. In other words, anyone who's seen or been around the Commonwealth has not really related to anybody there, and they haven't related back. Harry himself has done well, William's done well. The Queen is incredibly popular over there and is Prince Charles. So what a trashy, nasty, spiteful thing to say. Yes. And yes. and sort of overblown with with self-indulgence. Really. Well as if to say that, you know, despite the many, many decades uh, of for which the Queen has ruled, uh, not only this country but also has 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 occupied a very, very respectful place as head of the Commonwealth, that suddenly Megan's gonna go, Yeah, but they couldn't wait to see me because uh, I'm a woman of colour. Yes. yes. Shocking. It is shocking. The next one is this. Despite the trouble the royal family had faced in the past, particularly in the aftermath of Diana and Charles's divorce and her death, when many believed the monarchy might not survive, this revelation, the revelation is actually the, um, that the, there's some senior royal who is racist. Yes. Um, was far more damaging and could no doubt bring down the monarchy. So this revelation that there is somebody we don't know who can bring down the, the will bring down the monarchy because of what happened to Meghan when there's no evidence whatsoever. And the thing about saying I wonder what Archie's face colouring or skin colouring mm. would be could be someone just chatting nicely and kindly. And what colour hair might he have? Will it be red like his dad? So I think that's another actual shocking way of comparing them with Charles and Diana's divorce yes. and her death. But also, doesn't it equally sound just like sort of clutching at straws, really, trying to make out that there's something there which is rather unpleasant, when yeah, there clearly isn't? Exactly what I think, that they're blowing it up to enormous issue when it's just perhaps one tiny phrase that somebody said meaning well maybe wasn't meaning well but i suspect it was meaning well and and they've used this to be you know victims of the world yes and i mean there's not really even any proof angela that the thing was ever said yes well even if it was you know you 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 can say that um you know i wonder if he'll be have dark hair like his mother i wonder if he'll have you know, red hair like his father. I wonder mm. what colour he skin he will be. I mean, mm. it's not necessarily racist. It is there because it's a useful 
um, hammer to try and get rid of the monarchy. The people who want their uh, titles and want the monarchy to pay for them and look after them financially without them doing anything whatsoever is the monarchy they're trying to destroy. Yes, and that would appear to be the whole point of this exercise, really, because, um, yes. you know, one of the many books that they will be providing us with over the course of the next few years, lucky old us, um, <laughs> is going to be all about the Queen, isn't it? Yes. And I mean, the last one. does that mean they're, they're, they're currently sitting there writing the next one? Well, of course, you know, Harry's still finishing off his memoir, whatever that really means. Mm. And then there'll be one book after another. They uh, allegedly have enough money for four books now the publishers are so it'll be one groan and um and poor me after the other yes now the last one is actually even more awful um and that is uh here we are just like the royal family's silence during the resurgence of the black lives matter movement the denial of the um color of uh, Archie's skin, lacked the condemnation that many in the UK and the Commonwealth wanted to hear. Now, that shows an ignorance beyond imagination mm -hmm. because Black Lives Matter is a political movement. Yeah. Senior royals don't talk about politics like that, certainly not the Queen. And it's also very, very left-wing and, and anti-government. Mm. And so what are they saying? So that, again, is just a way of slapping them in the face. I, I, I So they're it. just accusing the Queen, basically, of not saying anything about Black Lives Matter, therefore she must be a racist. Yes. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. It's actually ludicrous, this. It is ludicrous. But why are they allowing it? Why aren't they fighting against it? Why aren't they trying to stop it coming out? Because mm. it is just absolutely pure nastiness. Yes. Well, of course, they're too busy. Maybe their lawyers are all too busy tied up suing everybody else. They haven't got any more, <laughs> any more, any more sort of bandwidth to sue to sue anybody <laughs> new. <laughs> no, it could be it could be that let me just ask you one uh, one last thing before you go uh, america's asking for uh, prince andrew uh, to be handed over effectively apparently joe biden's office is now going involved president biden you'd think would have enough on his plate dealing with the hurricane in new orleans oh, and dealing with the afghanistan problem but apparently not uh, apparently the officials from his office in the white house have said um, that they would like to see prince andrew handed over effectively Yes. Well, they say they want to do that because they have mutual legal assistance between the two countries. Oh, yeah. But I would like to know really what's happening to the accident in 2020 when the American diplomat's wife mm. uh, on the wrong side of the road and killed Harry Dunn, age 19, yes. on his motorbike. And right. she won't come over and be tried here. So um, I'm not too keen on listening to that one. No. Uh, not that I support Andrew, but I think that you can't have it both ways. Well, no, you can't really. But I suppose the difficulty is that Andrew has said as well, hasn't he, in the past, that he might seek in some way some kind of diplomatic immunity uh, from the time when he was a trade envoy, which apparently yes. is what he was when all of this stuff that he's accused of getting involved in happened. Yeah, but this woman is not um, a diplomat. Her husband is a diplomat. No, I think she was actually that. the diplomat. I think it turns out that she was the diplomat, um, and, okay. the, and the husband right. actually worked at the at the base. But she was actually the one who was the diplomat. 
Mm. The thing is that he's going to be charged with rape, whether or not he goes over there or not. I mean, this seems to be slightly uh, at a distance and that they want to talk to him about his friendship mm. with Epstein. Um, it isn't about the girl. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly at an edge, in which case he'll have two things to worry about. But they haven't said they're going to accuse him of anything yet. No. They just want to chat. Yes, and of course, he did say, did he not, famously in the Newsnight interview, that if his legal advisers thought it was a good idea, he would go and cooperate with them, but they haven't said that. They haven't said it's a good idea, and they are much likely to say that um, the American law doesn't work here, just mm. as our law doesn't work over in America, which protects Harry and Meghan. Yes. So, you know, you can't have it every which way. No. And what about Harry and Meghan? Are we likely to see them this uh, before the end of this year? Um, well, it depends whether or not they try and bring little Lilibet over for a christening. But I think they've understood that that's not going to happen. They're going to do a very secret one mm. over in California. I don't think they want to come over. And actually, if you've got um, a small baby, it's not necessarily a good idea to travel such a long way. But if they want to come over and leave the baby behind, uh, they might. But... I think people are quite tired of having them over here, really. Mm. They're just moaning about their lot. There's a sentence in the book that says, no one knows the difficulties we have been under and the challenges <laughs> we have faced. And I say, oh, God. You know, I mean, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because people sometimes say to me, well, why do you just not leave them alone? Why do you keep reporting on them? Just let them, you know, disappear uh, up their own backsides, as it were. The trouble is they keep hurling themselves out there. You know, every week there's something else that they say or that they do, and it's difficult to ignore yeah. it, really. Well, I mean, I thought, go away, have a happy life, look forward, not backwards. Um, you've got everything you want. Yeah, and stop whinging. You family, love, somebody loves you, you've got children. Um, why keep on chewing at this very, very nasty um, piece of rubbish? Yes. Very well said. Well said, Angela. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Angela Levin, Royal Biographer. She's got an early look at the ghastly latest chapter in Finding Freedom. Uh, it's not really Finding Freedom, is it? You weren't exactly in a cage. You weren't exactly incarcerated. Uh, although, of course, uh, as Prince Harry has said before, he feels uh, that his brother William is trapped, locked inside a kind of echo chamber of hate and nastiness and ghastliness when he can't escape from and he can't be himself. Well, we'll tell you what, William seems a lot happier than Harry does, doesn't he? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, another man who does not shirk his responsibilities just because he's a bank holiday, Mr. Peter Hitchens is here. Peter, very good morning. Good morning. I'm glad to see that you haven't uh, headed off hot foot to the beach like so many people, no matter what the weather is. It's one of those great sort of British pastimes, isn't it? That You have to sit on the beach no matter whether it's raining, windy, uh, no matter what's going on, you have to sit there until the end of the day. I can't stand bank holidays. I've never <laughs> seen the point of them. If you, if you want to have an extra day in the week, why make it as much like Sunday as possible and you're without the religious observance? Mm. I, I always thought they were dull and, and dispiriting stretches of time i rather preferred what we used to call tank holidays in the soviet union where at least you could go down to red square and watch some tanks <laughs> uh, in, in, in this in this country it's just everything that you want to do is either overcrowded or unavailable uh, so i go to work I, i've been doing it for years and uh, and treat it uh, as if it as if it wasn't happening uh, i know that some people think that they're fantastic opportunities but i think since paid holidays came in uh, and, and mo everybody gets them who's employed. I think the point of bank holidays, which were a wonderful thing in the Victorian era when hardly anyone got any time off at all, has just faded away. And this one in particular, what's it for? I know. What are we marking here? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like it's the last bank holiday before everybody goes back to school. Well, you've already been off for five or six weeks, so I don't really need, really need a holiday. But I see the TUC, back to its old tricks, is asking for four more bank holidays to be added to the, the calendar year on the grounds that uh, uh, we've got stingy entitlement to have time off in this country? Well, I would support the institution of one bank holiday. Uh, and it, would, it would be a copy of the American Thanksgiving, the Canadian Thanksgiving, which would take place on a Thursday yes, uh, rather than on a Monday. Uh, round about, I would suggest, Winston Churchill's birthday to celebrate our national survival in 1940. Uh, it, it's something which really ought to be commemorated in the calendar. Also, a, a bank holiday on Thursday is wholly different in spirit and nature uh, from one on a Monday. And if it has some reason for existing, I think, and for families to gather together on it, I always liked the American Thanksgiving. Uh, it seems to me to be quite unique and totally unlike any, any British holiday. Yes. And well worth importing. But that's one I would support. But the others, frankly, you can keep and certainly get rid of May Day because there's one absolute guarantee that May Bank holiday will be sleety, drizzly or freezing cold. Uh, and it, it always only reminds me of poor old Michael Foote, mm. uh, who, charming as he in many ways was, doesn't really deserve to have a holiday in his memory. No, I think the problem, of course, is that uh, an awful lot of these holidays have just been around for such a long time that people kind of expect them. I'm like you. I mean, I've, I've, I've got no interest really having a bank holiday off. Um, if I want to have a long weekend, I'll just take a long weekend when nobody else has got it. Um, 
But... I mean, it's, it's probably because of the crazy life that journalists lead. I mean, for many, many years, I haven't had what most people regard as a weekend. I've either worked regularly on Saturdays or regularly on Sundays. And my, especially when I worked abroad, there was no such thing really as a day off. If you were in the country that you were the resident correspondent in, you couldn't really, if the office called you up, say, well, actually, I'm on holiday. Uh, you were there. They, they, they paid for you to be there. And you, you jolly well had to, to drop whatever you were doing and get on with it. And that's, that's the rule. So I'm, I'm, in that way, my life is completely unlike most people's. And it has a lot to do with my attitude towards bank holidays. I can see why people might value them. I just don't, uh, I, I just don't like them myself. And I think, actually, if we, if we got rid of a lot of them and, and, and introduced the idea I just suggested of a, of a late November Thanksgiving Thursday, mm. I think a lot of people would uh, would have more fun yes. out of it. Well, one of the we... nice things about Thanksgiving is it's completely and utterly unreligious. It's not really uh, nailed to any particular yeah, uh, creed or anything. Sure, I mean, there is there is an element in it. Um, who, 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 are you, who are you giving thanks to on these occasions? The United States is a curious country. It's simultaneously actively secular in an awful mm. lot of things, but it's fundamentally religious. After all, it was founded by... Uh, by, by Cromwellian Protestants, mm. Cromwell very nearly went there himself uh, because they they wanted that sort of country. So I, I did. So if you want it to be religious, I, uh, Americans of of, uh, of my acquaintance do go to church on Thanksgiving. It's, uh, it's yes, I mean church. some do, but what I, I suppose yeah, I suppose what I mean is it's not like Christmas, which is not necessarily celebrated by the Jewish community in New York, for example. When I lived there, no, um, you know, Christmas Christmas. Christmas is a much smaller holiday than Thanksgiving. Yeah, OK, Christmas is probably one of the most irreligious holidays there is, though. If you actually are a Christian on, on, on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, you, you feel very strongly in a minority, I find. <laughs> yes, I think that's probably People true. People are not celebrating the miraculous birth of television as much as anything else, as far as I can see. Yes, although uh, that's getting worse and worse and worse. You've got no chance, though, of course, you realise, Peter, of getting any kind of holiday based around Churchill. That would never do. You would be castigated into the fires of hell, wouldn't you? Well, I, 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 I was born on the uh, on, on the, the St. Jude's Day, and he's the patron saint of lost causes. So I, I, I drop <laughs> lost causes all the time. The, the thing is that most lost causes are also the best causes there are, so it, it gives me no pain. Maybe one day all the lost causes will be won. Yes, very possibly so. Let's talk a bit about your column this week, because I found it fascinating as ever, um, a different take on the whole Afghanistan picture. You were basically arguing that all these people who want to go around the world saving it don't seem to care a jot about what's happening on their street corner. Well, it doesn't seem to cross their mind that if there's that intervention might be necessary here. I, if, if you roam about a bit and read uh, and read down pages and read local newspapers in this country, you see evidence of an awful lot of horrible things going on, uh, which, if they were reported as happening in foreign countries, would no doubt lead the great and the good to demand that uh, we intervene to do something about it. Uh, but here it is. We are here. We live here. These things are within our power. We understand our own country. And yet for 50 years now, the the policing of our streets and the, the suppression of crime and disorder has almost entirely ceased to happen. And the case that I mentioned of some poor young man who was hunted and stabbed to death by a basically feral gang of people who didn't care who he was. Mm -hmm. They just decided to stab him to death on the streets, for goodness sake, of of Northwest Nine in London, uh, near Collindale, where the old British newspaper library used to, used to be, yes. so that I'm faintly familiar with. Mm. I used to slog up there. It, it's you think, well, hang on a minute. It's just a few years ago, I used to live in a very charming uh, village on the edge of, of Portsmouth called Alvestone, and I read. I was sitting in Moscow, so I read of some terrible killing there, where a man was 
who 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 upbraided some people for for making noise in the street was was kicked to death. Mm. I thought, hang on a minute, this is my country. I grew up there. Uh, it wasn't like that when I was there. Why doesn't somebody do anything about it? So I say, if if you're so dead keen, passionate to intervene, then start at home. Yeah. Uh, and once you've sorted out this country and made it into the into the into, into not not a paradise, but a reasonably well functioning country with uh, where you, a, a young man can walk home from work safely on the street in in northwest London, and then you might think of spreading your the benefits and blessings of your civilization elsewhere but until you can civilize britain i think it's a it, it's quite a nerve to go around telling the afghans that you're coming to civilize them uh. and it's it's, it's it, the arrogance of it and the, also the strange obsession with all kinds of people uh, who, who completely surprised me or have been enraged by uh, by president biden doing probably the one sensible thing he will do in his entire life of pulling out of afghanistan now, rearguard actions and retreats are always costly, and they 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 are very difficult things to do. Uh, and no doubt, this one could have been done better. And no doubt, all the people who say this one could have been done better would have done this one better if they had themselves been in Kabul. But leaving that aside, I think the decision to get out, one which I've called on our own government to do for many many years, was a, a right decision and one which should be applauded. And yet, people are moaning on about the defeat and betrayal and everything else. Uh, people who really ought not to say this kind of thing, and I, I really don't don't see that it really that is is actually a true reflection of the needs of this country to constantly demand that we intervene elsewhere. Also, it's a fantastic overestimate of our power. Do people know how tiny our army is, uh, or how ill-equipped? You know, we we now have a smaller army than than the the Nazi occupiers allowed Vichy France to have. They gave a token army of 100,000. Ours is smaller than yeah. that. And, and we expect we can go around the world intervening like some great empire, uh, telling people how they must live and, and, and how, they must, how they must treat women and all the rest of it. Who, who are we to do this when we can't even keep our own house in order? Mm. Interesting point. I mean, I suppose uh, the argument about um, the world's most dangerous aspects is that it's all very well to say we should leave Afghanistan. But if by leaving Afghanistan, we make the world a more dangerous place just because of the way of things, then perhaps it's not such a good idea. And if we also end up importing an awful lot of people from Afghanistan as a result uh, of, of, of rescuing them, uh, then that's also not a great idea. Well, there's another question. I mean, I, as I say, anybody who actually now takes an Afghan family into his or her home, well, I'd have no criticism of them. That's uh, that's immensely charitable action. But everybody who thinks somebody else should take a, a, an Afghan into their home or thinks somebody else should pay uh, for Afghans to settle in this country, I don't have quite so much time for. But it's a fantasy that, uh, that Afghanistan, if we leave it alone, will somehow be a source of danger. So it's the reason why the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the wild Mujahideen uh, grew up in... Afghanistan was precisely because the United States government uh, put the Mujahideen of Afghanistan in touch with the Saudi Arabians and equipped them to try and do the Russians down back in uh, back in, at the end of the 1980s. And that's the origin of all this. There's no other, there's no other real organic connection uh, between between Pashtun people in Afghanistan and uh, international terrorism. And once we've gone, they have a, quite enough problems. They barely have an economy after after all these years and years of, of conflict. Uh, and they, they seem to me to be entitled to to as much help as we can give them, honestly, to rebuild the country they used to have, which I have to say from accounts that I've read back in the 50s and early 60s was quite a, a functioning 
a happy place, uh, which out, outside interventions of all kinds have, have done down. I also always remember with these discussions, I, I, I once had a terrible experience in Mogadishu in Somalia, uh, where I went pretty much by accident and, mm. and, and nearly died of fright. And the thing about Somalia is that about 30 or 40 years before, I've shown photographs of it, Mogadishu was, was like an Italian city with white-gloved policemen directing yeah. traffic and, and shiny cars going down streets with shops and well-dressed people. And by the time foreign intervention had, had gone on there, every, practically every outside power you can think of, all the clever people in Somalia have gone and, and live elsewhere in places like California. And the place is a terrifying hellhole. It was we, by intervening, who made it like that. Mm. Somalia, left to its own devices, would have been a much happier place. I, I have to, there is no, as far as I know, no pattern which suggests that most of the time these interventions make things better. I occasionally even say that, that, that they might they might do if you're very lucky. But almost all of them end in tragedy. Sure. But I mean, I've seen, as I'm sure you have, pictures of Kabul uh, and uh, Beirut and, um, and even Tehran back in the 1970s when, you know, uh, people are sitting out in pavement cafes. The women are walking around without yep. wearing burqas and it's all very westernised looking. Now, I don't know whether that would be put down to... Um, Western intervention or whether that was how civilised those countries then were, because it would seem to me that an awful lot of what's happened to those three cities anyway has been down to Muslim fundamentalism. Well, I think you, you, you could always say have made an exception for Kabul to, as against the rest of Afghanistan. Being the capital with the airport and international contacts, it was going to be, uh, how shall I put it, more, more influenced by the outside world than the rest of the country. But there's no doubt those pictures exist. Uh, and so you could say that it's the same actually of Gaza, uh, where, where Israelis living nearby used to go for the nightlife. I've talked to them about this. You can imagine that now, yeah. nightlife under Hamas. But they, that's, that's what used to happen. It's, 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 it's another world. Uh, I don't think it was... Uh, and I, 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 I tweeted last week an extraordinary excerpt from my old 1938 edition of the Children's Encyclopedia recounting how in the 1920s, uh, an actively westernizing Afghan government uh, tried to to push uh, the liberalism, particularly the European type rights for women, and in the end, the government fell, and everybody had to be airlifted out of uh, of Kabul in 1929. So the, the, the history repeats itself over and over again. I, it, it's but a balance can be found. I think in a lot of places uh, where the, which which used to be both reasonably modern and uh, an open in a way that they're not now. Uh, and are now full of uh, burqas and niqabs and all the rest. Mm. Uh, the reason for the change is the growing influence of Saudi Arabia all over the, the, the Islamic world, uh, which has grown stronger and stronger. Uh, I think largely, I'm afraid to say, encouraged by the United States. And I think it's that influence which, is, which has made many of these things change. Yes, I think you're right. Peter, stay with us if you would. A couple of other things to talk to you about coming up very shortly. Uh, Peter Hitchens from the Mail on Sunday, of course, talking to us as he does uh, every Monday right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense. Uh, he's making a lot of it as ever. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk uh, some more to Peter Hitchens, who's uh, with us. Peter, there was an interesting um, a version of your, an old university challenge show going okay. doing the rounds of the weekend. You wrote briefly about how 20 years ago you captained a, uh, a team of tabloid newspaper men and women against uh, Boris Johnson and his team of top uh, intellectuals from the broadsheets. Well, I didn't captain it. The captain of our team was Anne Leslie. Oh, was it? I, okay. Who I could be seen having the occasional acerbic exchange during the... Uh, 
and Leslie of the Daily Mail, who, uh, I, with whom I can be seen having the occasional survey exchange during the um, during the, the quiz. Yes. <laughs> On one occasion, for instance, I gave her the answer that the the President of the United States, who was being referred to, was Woodrow Wilson, and she transmitted this as Andrew Wilson. I thought, oh, no, she's not <laughs> at the point. Uh, I, I must. Uh, I must admit, I did. I did used to enjoy standing at the bar with Anne Leslie on various occasions. She was a very entertaining woman, indeed. But I, 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 I wasn't very entertained by that particular moment. There was one other as well where I said, "Come on, you make your mind up. You're the captain. If you listen very carefully, you pick <laughs> things up." Uh, but it, what I now know about University Challenge, of course, is it's recorded and edited, and the the contributions people had always faithfully reflected. You can't see me, for instance, frantically pushing on the button. Right. which Tony Parsons, who was really the star of our side, yeah. uh, constantly beat me to. There I was. I had the answer. I thought, right, show off Hitchens now. Press right. the button. No buzzer, right. because Parsons already got it. Uh, you, you're fighting as much against your own teammates as you are against the other side. Mm. Uh, I remember it with some affection. It was quite fun to do. The bizarre thing, I can't remember getting there or going back. Right. Uh, Where did you do it? Was it done in, in Broadcasting House or something? Uh, no, it was done in Manchester. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's still. I think it still is. I think you still have to go up to uh, to, to, to Salford to do it. Right. I think in the, in the same studios as Coronation Street in those days. Right. Uh, but uh, it, like, nothing about it. But the uh, it, it, extraordinarily, although it was, I think, probably the first time University Challenge had a non-student uh, contest. Uh, who actually they, they had teams from who were not uh, who were not currently university teams. It the episode vanished. And I, I was puzzled by this, and I still am, because I thought it was fascinating, particularly since it contained the future Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, on, on occasions making a fool of himself, and on occasions showing that he does actually know quite a bit. Uh, that's, he, he was the star of his own side, beyond doubt. Mm. Uh, I was surprised it had vanished. So when it reappeared again, it just popped up as if it had floated up from the bottom of some gigantic pond, popped up on YouTube. And so I thought, right, time, it, uh, time to... Give this some publicity. A lot of people would like to see it. It's still there. You can reach it by going to the Peter Hitchens blog if you mm. can't find it any other way. But it, I think it's it's a fascinating watch in many ways. One of the interesting things about it is the way people talk. And Jerry Paxman, who am I to talk? But he's far more lardy da uh, in in 1999 than he than, than he is now. <laughs> uh, the other thing, of course, is that the the questions are, are much more interesting than they are now. All the questions now about about 19th century German mathematicians or Polynesian islands. Uh, in those days, they were actually about things people might know the answers to, mm. and, and therefore it was more entertaining to watch. I think the program's gone down the plumbing, frankly. I only watch it to, 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 because I quite enjoy being irritated. Yes. Well, at the risk of sounding like somebody who just complains about television not being as good as it was, it really isn't as good as it was. I don't quite know what happened, but at some point or other, almost everything that used to be any good, which I, in which I include Newsnight and Question Time and University Challenge uh, and the news, uh, which are all the things I used to watch, I just don't bother anymore. News is unwatchable. I mean, I think of those nights when I used to watch Reggie Bosenkamp yeah. and doing News at 10. And that, after, that's after I switched over from the BBC. I had right. hours watching News. Now I can't stand it. it we, we call it Vremia in our house because it reminds us of the old Soviet uh, TV. <laughs> it is. So it's become a kind of... It's become a sort of social policy unit oh, of some description. incredibly boring. I, 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 I listen to these on the radio now instead because at least you might get some news from from time to time. Yeah. And as for this thing last night, Vigil, the, uh, the the new nuclear submarine drama. Oh, yes, I heard about that. Yeah. I mean, for goodness sake, I, I can speak with some authority because I have actually spent a weekend as an interloper in a yes. nuclear submarine. And there's a very famous picture of you standing on it. 
the, the, well, I'm both as, as famous as I can make it, but I, the, uh, it, 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 one of the things about it was how extraordinarily friendly they were to mm. outsiders. Uh, we had a very good dinner in the in, in the wardrobe with quite a lot of red wine consumed, followed by a film show as well. Mm. It's made out to be a lot more austere than I... It may have got worse. Now they have these huge... These things are the size of Channel Steamers anyway. They are mm. enormous. Even yeah. the Palazzo boats were big. The Trident ones are colossal. But I, I can't... It, and the Navy is a very friendly service, in my experience. As well. So here's this, this detective it goes aboard and is, is, is treated in... The, 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 you might say the ideal way to make a hostile suspicious. I, it doesn't look like the Navy to me at all, but there you are. That's what the BBC thinks the Navy is like. So <laughs> uh, presumably they, they will refuse cooperation at some point. Well, I can, well, only, I yeah, I can only assume that, that everything <laughs> that they now make, including all the drama, has to go through a sort of filtering process, which takes probably at least the best part of a year to make sure that they've gotten knocked all the rough edges off and they haven't offended anyone. And I haven't even mentioned all the politically correct aspects of it because I mean, why bother? It would, <laughs> the astonishing thing would be if, they, if, 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 if it didn't have them. Right. But this is the weird thing about the BBC. Every, every so often I'll switch on the television and there'll be a sort of random episode of Faulty Towers on, which is still very funny, but, uh, but it's riddled with all sorts of things which would never make it past the BBC censors nowadays when it comes to calling people names, you know, insulting people, you know, xenophobia, racism, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's full of it. And they put that out quite happily without any sort of uh, um, to-do. Well, of course, if, again, if they do try and, and fiddle with it, there's, there's, there's trouble. I, I'm in two minds about this. It may be that, that, that we were too casual about these things. It may be that, that, that we were making people unnecessarily unhappy by being too relaxed. I don't know. I, I can't make my mind up I, whether it was that or whether because we laughed about these things and were more open about them, actually that was part of the stage of getting them under control and making this what still seems to me, and I've seen a lot of societies, still seems to me to be one of the most tolerant societies I've ever come across in my mm. life. I can't help thinking that going through that stage of comedy when things were out in the open helped to make it so rather than rather than made it worse. But I, I, no one, I don't think, has ever done any work on that. Uh, but I suspect it's true that it was, a, it, it, it was a safety valve during a period of transition when we we altered and, and did some good. But some of it look back on now. You can see why people might be upset. I'm not, I, I for instance, have always been, when, when the Dam Busters film is shown, I, I, there are some people who, who resent the fact that the name of the dog is not spoken out loud anymore. Mm. I think it shouldn't be. And I, 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 I sometimes think some of the people who, who want it to be spoken out loud and say that they wish it yes. were, like those people who wear gollywog badges, it, it looks innocent, but actually it's yes. not. No, I think that's right. And I think it's quite a sensible point of view to have. Peter, thank you very much indeed. As ever, we'll speak to you soon. Uh, Mail on Sunday Collins, Peter Hitchens there uh, with, again, a very sensible view of the world, uh, which is far, far from what we get in most places, apart from here on Talk Radio, where sense is uh, absolutely the currency in which we deal all the time. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's my pleasure to delight, uh, to delight you all uh, with the presence of Mr. Sebastian, Dr. Sebastian Gorker, I should say, who joins us from Washington, D.C. Sebastian, a very good uh, afternoon to you. 
Happy bank holiday. Uh, my, my money's on Mike. Between Extinction Rebellion <laughs> and the Independent Republic of Mike Gray, my money's on you, Mike. Listen, they're not getting in the way of my bottle of claret and a steak lunch, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, Soho awaits for me, so uh, that's the only thing I'm looking forward to. But listen, how the hell have we got to this place uh, with this absolutely useless president that you now have, who was the toast of, uh, you know, the liberal media, uh, the man who was going to solve all the world's problems, the man who was going to, you know, pour oil on troubled waters. I mean, he's caused the biggest disaster in foreign policy history, hasn't he? Uh, we told you so. I mean, we told everybody you can't have a senile, doddering old man who's been a swamp creature for 47 years, never had a real job, come in and not screw things up. There, there's a guy in, in, in American politics who is a, a bureaucrat par excellence. He's called Robert Gates. Yes. He was... Uh, former CIA director, former defense secretary under the Obama administration, v very measured, very straight shooter. In his autobiography, Gates said there isn't a foreign policy issue that Biden hasn't been on the wrong side of for 40 years. Right. And he comes in, you give him the Oval Office. And what do you expect in just seven? I mean, look, it took Carter four years to screw things up. Sleepy Creepy has done it in seven months. Amazing. Whether it's this, I mean, I, I love watching the reports from from you guys and and also Nigel. Oh, we're going to have X thousand people illegals come across the channel this year, thanks to Biden, Mike. We're going to have two million illegal aliens oh. cross the southern border. Not thousand. Two million. That's because he literally dismantled the regime that my old boss put in place. Yeah. Whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's the Nord Stream pipeline sanctions being dropped with Russia, whether it's China lecturing us at the Sino-US summit with BLM talking points, with our chief diplomat just sitting there like a cuckold, taking it all. It's an utter, yeah. unmitigated disaster. It really is extraordinary stuff. Let me uh, play a couple of clips, though, because you've got a fantastic uh, uh, interview with Donald Trump, which is out there, uh, which, of course, uh, you did on your uh, radio show. Uh, it is Salem Radio, of course. Let's have a listen to Donald Trump on wokeism with Sebastian. And take a look happened. You know, you talk about the greatest military, but take a look at what happened in Afghanistan. I mean, we beat the Nazis, but look at this. We're being sent out of Afghanistan. And frankly, the August 31st date is not being lengthened because they're not allowing him to do it. It's not because of him. It's because they're not allowing him any more time. Whoever thought this was possible? So with this woke culture, our military is going to be a loser and the whole country is going to be a loser. That's uh, America First. It's the uh, Sebastian Gorka show on Salem Radio. I mean, extraordinary thing uh, that has happened because he's right to say it. Um, the, 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 the military in America has become woke, hasn't it? We have the most senior uh, military officer in the United States, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, who in testifying in, in front of Congress said, uh, I, I want to know what white rages because I'm white and I'm fine with critical race theory being taught at the most prestigious military academy at West Point. Mark Milley maybe should have been studying jihadi rage and jihadi culture. We, we are, but look, it's, it's a transatlantic thing. Look at Nick Carter, mm. that abominable interview he just gave where he talked about, let's not judge the Taliban because they may want to have an inclusive government. Are you smoking crack, General Carter? I've 
been to Afghanistan, that the, their idea of inclusion is making sure that only jihadis are in their government, period, end of story. Yes, it's extraordinary. And I mean, even as we were speaking to him and he was talking about the new, uh, you know, sort of shiny Taliban version two, uh, which apparently is supposed to be so much nicer than the first version. You know, they were literally executing people by the dozen in Kandahar and in other regions outside of Kabul. And they were, you know, going around door to door, fishing people out and shooting them in the head. Let's just give everybody a reality check. The Taliban are jihadi fundamentalists who harbored bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, and the 9-11 attacks were launched from training bases in Afghanistan. This, <laughs> this Taliban 2.0, just a couple of days ago, said, uh, what what bin Laden? He was never here, and uh, bin Laden yeah. didn't do 9-11. Didn't do 9-11, <laughs> right. okay? That's, that's fine. That's the Taliban 2.0. Yeah, yeah. they tell lies uh, because they don't want to know what the truth actually is. And, I mean, the, the, the biggest problem they've got now is not so much uh, America, but ISIS-K, because they've now clearly got a second war front on their, on their hands, and they've then got to worry about the Northern Alliance. I mean, the whole place is going to be on fire in about two and a half nanoseconds. Yeah, but they've got six, they've got all the equipment that Biden left. Them. Yeah, I mean six, this is unbelievable. Six hundred thousand machine guns and assault rifles. Yeah, sixty-five thousand military vehicles. Afghanistan now has more Black Hawk helicopters, Black Hawk helicopters than than most of the nations in the world, and that was a conscious decision of this senile old man mm. who calls himself the president, Mike. Incredible stuff. I mean, they've got more Black Hawk helicopters now than every other country in NATO, apart from the United States. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, exactly. It's incredible. This and, is, I mean, what the, was he thinking? The... Was he thinking? Uh, look, I look at the people who make the decisions, and there's a very interesting thread, whether it's the Secretary of State, uh, whether it is the National Security Advisor, people you've never heard of before, these real beta males, mm. and you find out there is a connection. They've all been uh, bag men or women. They've all been uh, the, the, the peons, the flunkies for either Susan Rice, who really runs the administration, who's, who's in a slot that doesn't have to be confirmed by the Senate, or Hillary Clinton. Mm. Think about this. The only qualification the national security advisor of the United States has is he was deputy chief of staff for Hillary in the State Department. These are co-conspirators and co-criminals of the people responsible for the Benghazi massacre, on and on and on. They have no no concept of grand strategy, Mike. No, and no clue about what they're doing. I mean, even watching Biden yesterday as the coffins were being removed from the plane, covered in the stars and stripes, the, the star-spangled banner, the very solemn uh, uh, situation, he's looking at his watch and you go, what is wrong with you? That tells you everything. When I when I saw that, I immediately posted that, and that tells you this man that there is a black black hole where his soul should be. Mm. You are at Dover Air Base. You are you are doing the most sacred. This is the most sacred thing any commander in chief can do to welcome back those who died for our nation in coffins draped in our flag, and he's doing this. That tells you who who Joe Biden is. He's truly evil. You know, he's in, it's it's a, it's a dangerous combination. Ignorant evil, incompetent. That is a devil's brew, Mike. And and weak as well. And my father always used to say, you never want to have anyone weak around you because they will just completely and utterly let you down because in the end, uh, they're only interested in their own survival. 
Exactly. It is all about themselves. It's really, it's a nice, you know, colliery to the uh, the millennial uh, culture. It's about themselves. It's about staying in power. In, in a normal world, this, this guy would have been removed mm. last week. They would have used the 25th Amendment, Nancy Pelosi, the rest of the Democrats, and said, get out of the way. Let's see how Kamala Harris can do. It is stunning. The Speaker of the House, the most powerful Democrat outside of the White House, has said nothing. Yes. Nancy Pelosi is just... Oh, the only thing she said right at the beginning when it started to, to collapse, she said... I'm I'm proud of Biden's decision to leave Afghanistan. That's the only thing really? she said. She's proud. Yeah. And now we've got 13, 13 servicemen and qu- uh, women dead. Maybe it's time for her to buy another $25,000 fridge. You know, she's clearly for, got for, no mental capacity left. This is the woman who wanted to impeach President Trump for making a phone call. Uh, oh, twice. Don't forget. Twice. And the second time was after he left office. This is how deranged they are. She tried to impeach my old boss mm. after he left the White House. Yeah, unbelievable. Let's have a listen to uh, to Donald Trump once again talking uh, on America First um, on the Salem uh, Radio Network uh, to Sebastian Gorka. But we're being pushed around by them. Biden is being dictated to by the Taliban. It's not even possible to believe. And ISIS is tougher than Taliban. And we wiped out a hun- I wiped out a hundred percent of the I- the ISIS caliphate. You know that you were there. Yes. And by the way, uh, the caliphate was building and building and building at a level that nobody's seen. Obama and Biden lost total control. I wiped it out. You know, we have great generals in there, but you don't know them. They're not the television generals. They're the real generals. The television generals. What a what a great phrase. And also, let me point out to you, as I'm sure you know, one of the mothers of one of the Marines killed yes. uh, in that airport attack called President Joe Biden yesterday a dementia-ridden piece of crap. Yeah, uh, look, it, it's hard. It's a hard truth, but these are the ones that have to be spoken if you're one of the people who voted for Joe Biden because you didn't like the mean tweets, well, guess what? This is on you. You facilitate. I, I, I know one thing. When we came into the White House, the president said, it's not going to be business as usual. The people who've told us, Obama told us, ISIS is just something you have to get, have to, 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 to um, get used to. He mm. called it a generational threat. We came in, the president removed all the lawyers from in front of the, the special forces guys and said, you are going to destroy the physical caliphate of ISIS. Guess what, Mike? It wasn't five years. It was five months later, and the caliphate was dust. That's the reality of leadership, and that is the vacuum we have today. When it comes to Afghanistan, Mike, I've been to Afghanistan. The the idea that you're going to turn it into Switzerland or you're going to completely leave and everything will be fine is likewise completely astrategic. But these are the clowns who are running America right now. But in addition to leaving behind $85 billion worth of kit and machinery and and high-tech military hardware... They've basically handed the country to China, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. All these people, what is it, the Instinctual Rebellion, maybe they're coming in to teach you about how you've got to save the planet. If you want to drive around in an electric vehicle, guess where the lithium comes from? Guess where the copper comes from for those batteries? Mm. It comes from Afghanistan. The biggest copper mine in the world is in Afghanistan. And Biden just handed it on a plate to communist China. This will have ramifications across the globe. And look, when you've got the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of Parliament lambast and holding contempt 
the sitting president of the United States. God bless Tom, Tom Tugendhat from the same unit I was in, in the TA. Mm. That's never happened in the history of US-UK relations. You've never had a parliamentarian with his seniority call out a sitting president. So whether it's our enemies emboldened or whether it's our allies and friends very worried, it is stunning what this man has achieved in just seven months. It's disastrous, Mike. Yes, I was talking to some friends of mine over there just over the weekend, and many of them saying the one thing that he has now done is united people, even those who voted <laughs> for him, against him. Because uh, unless, apart from the absolute, you know, bedwetters who will vote Democrat no matter what, if they voted a dead man in, they'd be happy. Um, everyone's realised what a blunder this was to make this man president of the United States. I truly hope so. I truly hope there is buyer's remorse across the nation now that, that, that you know, the people who said, oh, he's he's such a nice old man. He's like your granddad. He's Let's really have not. him be the. No, he's, oh no. I mean, th th you can see it when, when he gets that, that mean look in his eyes, when, when a reporter dares to yeah. ask him a question. Like yesterday, a, a reporter wanted to ask him about Afghanistan. What did he do? Slapped his folder shut, turned around and ran away from the podium. Yeah. The, the, the coffins are arriving now. And what's his response? To walk away mm. from the podium. That's how nice an old granddad he is. Exactly right. And I mean, aside from the uh, the state that he's in physically and mentally, um, you know, Kamala Harris has been very quiet as well. And God help us uh, in the rest of the world if she gets to take over, because I don't know if you remember Bernie Grant, who used to run Brent Council here, but she's sort of the equivalent of Bernie Grant, it seems to me. That's about all she's ever done. Uh, yeah, well, she's very, um, look at her political career, look at how it started and what was the uh, the launch for her career. And you'll understand just how uh, power hungry a woman is. She's prepared to uh, sleep with uh, leading politicians who are married to get her first leg up in her career. And that's known. These are people who've gone on record to say, yes, that's how she got her first appointment. And then when she's packed you know, kidded off to go to South Asia while Afghanistan is collapsing. She lands at the airport and a reporter asks her about Afghanistan. What does she do, Mike? She cackles. Cackling Kamala being asked about Afghanistan laughs at the reporter. So whether it's, you know, what how she got on with Willie Brown or way back when, or whether it's a complete lack of empathy today, it could be even worse than Joe Biden. Mm. But at least people will see the Democrats for who they are. Yeah. I mean, is there an opportunity or will there be an opportunity if this carries on and it gets worse, which it's almost bound to do? I mean, if there was to be some kind of attack on the US for, for, for the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, I mean, is there a, a method by which Biden could be removed? Oh, there is. Yeah. So it's the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, whereby an individual, if they are deemed to be uh, incapable of executing the functions of the president, they can be removed uh, with the acquiescence of a two thirds vote of the cabinet. And it has to include the vice president. So Kamala has to vote with the cabinet to remove him and then he's removed. Or he could just he could just resign. And he gave this very peculiar interview a few months ago where he said he was asked if there's a difference between him and Kamala. And he actually said this. You can look up the video. He said, if, if there is a policy disagreement between me and Kamala, I will do the same as I agreed to do with Obama, which is I will find an ailment and I will resign. Mm. He actually said that. 
He actually said that. So who knows? Well, he didn't have to look very far, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs. And now, of course, he's fighting uh, the elements, too, because uh, the Hurricane Hurricane Ida has just hit uh, Louisiana, uh, yep. worse than Katrina. And I'm interested to see how he's reacted to that as well, because, of course, normally what he likes to do is blame everybody else for something that's happened. Now, he was in the White House for eight years after Katrina. If they didn't sort the, uh, the defences, right. the flood defences out then, then he's also to blame for that. Uh, well, this is very interesting. We'll see whether or not he travels down there. It was said that Bush didn't get down there quick enough when Katrina hit. But but look at what he's been saying. When, when In the first press conference after the Kabul attack, he actually says to the reporters, let me see who I've been instructed to yes. take questions from. Yes. Hang on, hang on. You're the most powerful man in the world. You're, you're in control of America's nuclear arsenals. Who's telling you who you're allowed to take mm. questions from? So, so what are his handlers going to do when it comes to the storm? Are they going to say it's, it would be a disaster to have him go there, fall down the stairs of Air Force One again, or send him in there to make a clown of himself? Stay tuned, guys. It's going to be very, very interesting few days. Uh, it really is. And, of course, um, there must be quite a fair amount of uh, trepidation um, in uh, in government now, because, you know, surely to heavens, if you're um, a man or a woman of any sort of conscience at all, you cannot work for this guy for long, surely. You've got to see the video of the Marine officer who said exactly that. Uh, two days ago, he said... Oh, yes, I heard oh, this, we... yeah. Right, so he, he actually went on, on a little video, like an Instagram post, and said, I cannot in good conscience... Um, not tell you how inept and just uh, incapable in of doing their work our senior officers are. He spoke the truth within 48 hours. He was relieved of his command and he has just resigned his commission. I, the, the shocking thing is there's just he's, there's maybe two individuals we've had like that, one from Space Command uh, and now this individual. I'd like to see some brave people stand up and say this cannot continue. And it's, it's not about your security or your pension. It's about the truth and the future of the nation. When yeah. things are so dire, you've got to cleave to the truth, guys. You've got to stand up and tell the truth. Exactly right, because what country now in the world can hope that America will defend them against the marauding forces of some other foreign nation that wants to take them over? Taiwan, for example. If China will right. get to Taiwan tomorrow, what's Biden going to do? Probably nothing. No, he, he, he'll hide, he'll go on vacation, or he'll, he'll talk about his favorite ice cream flavors like he usually does. But he, he, here's a word, uh, you know, we, we are born optimists here. I have to say something, it can be turned around. So for all of you who are worried in the UK, all our buddies who are just embarrassed by what's occurring, Ronald Reagan turned it around after the disaster of Carter, the Iranian yeah. hostage siege, the, the, the OPEC cartel and the shortage of oil. We did the same in a matter of months. When we came into the White House, the lack of leadership under Obama, the apology tour, we turned it around. So, guys, it may take a little time. We've got an election next year. We're going to trounce them in the House and the Senate. Then my old boss, I guarantee you, is running, and we're going to get him back in the White House. So it's going to be tough, but hang in there, and we can turn it around. Well, Sebastian, we'll certainly be with you to help you do that. So uh, hopefully at some point he'll open the bleeding borders as well. So I can come and have lunch with you.
I cannot wait. It's outrageous. <laughs> my best buddy's still sitting in the UK waiting to come here and see me a year after my 50th birthday. So, Steve, don't worry. With Mike, we're going to have a pint or two here in the US. Excellent stuff. Sebastian Gorka, of course, a host of America First uh, on the radio, um, on Salem Radio, and the Gorka Reality Check as well on Newsmax. He was interviewing Donald Trump. You heard it here first, of course, as well. Uh, we've got much more to do. Uh, how much longer can Biden survive this onslaught of criticism? Because he really is making a complete dog's breakfast of it all. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.